Well, good morning, LCM. Good morning. Today's date is December 10th, 2023. The title of today's message is The Bride-to-Be. Now, saints, this is a fruitful and unified church. Over the last few years, have you been participating in fruitful and unified teams? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have so many teams in this room that your pastors and elders actually have a whiteboard where we're trying to graph and figure out what's going on in this congregation. <laughs> Additionally, as a church body, we're in partnership with our brother churches and the One Association, and our unity has never been stronger or more fruitful. However, this morning, that's not exactly the kind of partnership that we're talking about. The kind of partnership that we're talking about, well, is the result of you people taking Matthew 19, 5 through 6, extremely seriously, Abambola. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let not man separate. Look, in this house, there's a constant stream of new marriages, a constant stream of unified and fruitful marriages that are producing babies because you people are one flesh and your covenants. At this very moment, we have at least seven expecting mothers that we are aware of sitting here today. That's not to mention all of the babies that have just been born in the last several months. This house is a fruitful house. At least seven. Now see what I know that some of you ladies, because I've been married for a long time, Pastor Judah. I can see that y'all are going, wait. Trying to figure out everybody. Yeah, there's at least seven that are in this house. And when we're talking about being fruitful, I want everybody, I actually want you to do this with me. I want you to turn around and look at Andrew Hayes in the sound booth just for a second. Can you stand up, Andrew? Oh, who's he sitting with? All five feet, 17 of you. Get up there. <laughs> see, I also see that some of you are trying to figure that out, too. Five feet, seven. Yes, yeah, six foot five. Here we go. I want you to look at Andrew Hayes for a minute. Do you see the desire in this man's eyes for his bride-to-be? I mean, let's be real. You can look up here now. I mean, the truth is, is he is currently utilizing all. Somebody say all. All. All of his God-given self-control in eager anticipation of being one with Sarah. I mean, they're in the sound booth right now with a team full of people appropriately spaced. But they're both in the sound booth right now. I mean, do you desire, church, to have the same kind of love affair with King Jesus that you see between these two? Amen. I mean, is there anybody that really desires that? Yeah. Are you burning with the same kind of eager passion for Jesus that you see in them? Yeah. 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 That's my job. I got you in the back. You're going to talk to me, Rick. I got you, Justin, everybody in this room. Do you desire a relationship with Jesus that is a love affair? Yes! Come on now, church. Let me ask you something. Among this fiery group of believers, is there anyone who can stand to your, defeat, your feet and declare that you are the bride of Christ? Do I have anybody in this house? 
And we worked really hard to get them to talk to us. Yeah, well, we're working on this. I mean, we got a response, and we wanted one. But the unfortunate thing is Wade just trapped you. I didn't do it. Wade trapped you. I just helped you speak and put it on a microphone. <laughs> Saints, we really are in good, fruitful times as a body. In the midst of all of the warfare that we're experiencing, don't lose sight of the fact that we are prospering under the hand of God. This morning, our topic is one that most think they understand and yet are really not in the mind of Christ, so to speak, to the extent that they think they are. Today we're talking about God's desire for his bride, that is the nation and people group of Israel. We're going to begin in a passage that most of you should know from your marriage enrichment text. Anybody know where we're going? Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7. So it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So what are we reading here, church? This Adonai, this great groom, is laying out four promises for his bride-to-be. He's going to say, he says here, I will bring you out. I'm going to free you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take you to be my own. See, this passage forms the basis for what every young Jewish groom's proposal to his bride was to be. This morning, we don't have time to teach on all of the traditional Jewish customs. We've done that many, many times, and most of you are familiar with that. The very uh, prolific amount of Jewish customs that are associated with marriage. But you should be aware that all of the Jewish customs are trying to model this very passage of Adonai as the groom beginning to speak to that who he is betrothed to. These four I will statements, among the others found in the law, form Adonai. They form him as the groom and the promises that he is giving to his bride-to-be. Furthermore, the Torah goes on to describe the commitments of the bride-to-be in response to what her groom's character and to his promises really are. If you've been through marriage counseling in this room, raise your hands, or marriage enrichment, rather. Okay, if you are not raising your hand, you should notice all of the ones that are around you. You're missing out on something if you have not deeply dived into marriage enrichment, and it's only for people who are committed to this church as a family and nothing else. It will enrich your life. But those of you who are unaware in the room, this forms the basis of Adonai as the groom's Promises for what he will do for a certain people group. Saints, help me with this question. Who is the bride in Exodus 6? Israel. Say it again a little more authoritatively. Israel. Just want to make sure we're getting the answer right. We're going to keep rolling with this. So we just looked at Exodus 6, which is outlining the groom's promises to the bride. A little bit like the discussion prior to the proposal. We're going to go to Exodus 19 now, and you're going to see the day that he proposed. This is Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, 
and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So again, Exodus 6 forms the basis for Adonai's proposal to his bride-to-be. Exodus 19 expounds on his plan for her, and in a sense, it is the day that he actually proposes. A cloud comes down, there's a physical representation of God meeting with his people on the mountain. And when you're considering this, a betrothal is something that is different and lost in our time. When we think of an engagement, we think of a desire to marry someone in a general time frame. Should something go wrong, though, the two could always separate. For many, an engagement period is a little bit like a trial run. In the ancient world, and specifically in the culture that God designed, the moment there was a proposal and it was accepted by the bride, meaning the events in Exodus 19, it is as legally binding as being married. It's just not consummated to the day of the wedding. Look, we have drift in our culture. There was a time when we had the exact same practice, but due to unfaithfulness, we view a man's promise to marry a woman as a maybe. That is not how God sees it, and it's not how the Bible represents this wedding story. So again, to enter into a marriage contract was equally binding as what we consider vows. It was just not to be consummated until the day of the wedding when the two become completely one. The language of Exodus 6 and Exodus 19 combined, well, it's binding covenant language that a young bride, one who didn't understand everything was happening, could hold on to during what is called the erosion period or the time period of the engagement while she is waiting for the wedding day. Throughout the Tanakh and the New Testament, which we don't have time to cover, we have stories about needing to keep oil burning, the waiting for the arrival of the groom. All of this is imagery that is speaking of a young bride who has received promises and is trusting in those promises while waiting for the arrival of the groom. So, church again, who is the bride in Exodus 6 and Exodus 19? Today you're going to find out that Adonai has been engaged for some time now. And the process of preparation, well, it has not diminished his desire for his bride. It's not diminished his design for his bride. And it certainly has not changed the bride that he has always wanted. Hayes, last minute, were you looking to swap for a different bride? Were you hoping for a Leah instead of a Rachel? No, God knows which bride he has proposed to and the one that he intends to marry on his wedding day. So we have it firmly established in the law through Exodus that the groom is made a proposal to his bride, and his bride is Israel. Let's take a look at the prophets now. Isaiah chapter 54. Let's take a look at verse 5. We're going to read this to you from the ESV. It says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. 
in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So the moment that Adonai proposed, Israel was his. Even though the actual consummation of the marriage is still yet to come. So there is a proposal and a long period in which this is going on, and the actual consummation of the ages is yet to come. But this is the language that you're hearing here in Isaiah. Many times during the erusion or engagement period, it appears as if the wedding will never happen. There's difficulties. You see the development that is needed in the relationship, but that faithless thought could never be further from the truth that the actual consummation will not take place. That is the faithless thought that we're getting at today. Because Adonai is the groom. He has his eyes set on a singular bride, which is the nation of Israel. And he will not allow his eyes to be deterred. He knows exactly who he is longing for, and he will bring this about in every way. And again, to make sure that we are crystal clear, who is that Adonai has promised to marry? See, this morning we're talking about a unified and fruitful marriage that is to come between the groom that is Adonai and his bride, Israel. We're going to pick up in Isaiah 62, and you're going to continue to hear how he is making his bride spotless, blemishless, perfect and radiant, so that she is ready on the day that she weds him. 62 verse 4, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you. The Lord delights in you. Who's the you there, church? The Lord delights in Israel, and the land of Israel shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Saints, there is a son of Israel, and he will be married to the land and the people of Israel. The unequivocal testimony of the whole counsel of the word of God is that Adonai desires to be married. Have you ever thought about God wanting something? I mean, he speaks about, I have the cattle on a thousand hills. What use do I have for your offerings? But he desires a bride. That desire was laid out in the law. It is still ongoing and it will exist in the heart of God until the consummation of all things. So here in Isaiah, once again, who is the bride that Adonai desires? Turn with us to Hosea chapter 2. Take a look at verse 19 with us. Somebody say bride to be is your turning. Hosea 2 in verse 19 says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Come on. Here in these two verses, do you hear the repetitious refrain that says, I will betroth you to me? Who is the you? It is clearly Israel. He says it again and again. See, Hosea 
is picking up on the language and the desire of God as laid out in the Torah. And he reaffirms Adonai's desire to marry his bride, Israel. He even declares this. Think about the context. We've taken these two verses, and maybe you're not as familiar with the context as you should be. But this is being said, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. You will know that I am the Lord. This is at a time where the bride has been clearly unrighteous, faithless, fickle. Could be akin more to a prostitute than to an actual bride. And still, Adonai says that she will be betrothed to him in righteousness, in faithfulness, in steadfast love. And just to make sure that we got it today, who is this that God is proclaiming to be his bride? Israel! We're going to take a minute and we're going to examine a few examples of the bride-to-be speaking about an ongoing hope, trust, and desire in the promises that the groom made to her. We've just gone through the law. We've just gone through the prophets. Now we're going to look at wedding language as outlined in the writings. So Psalm 30, 130, verse 7 and 8 is our first. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Look, we don't have time to talk about the Psalms of Ascent. But you should be aware, this, this is within the context of coming up to Jerusalem, and most specifically, coming up from prior exile and judgment. Yeah. But with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Guys, in case you're missing it, this is exactly what Adonai as the groom promised he would do for Israel in Exodus 6. I will redeem you. From Israel's perspective, the bride-to-be, the one who is waiting to marry the great groom. There is no one else who can bring in full redemption. Israel is the bride of Adonai, and their hope is in their groom completing the redemptive process that he started when he betrothed them or proposed to them. And one day, they will be completely redeemed at the wedding day. Again, who's the bride? Israel. Psalm 147, verse 19. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Okay, so we need you to remember that just a few minutes ago, we read through Exodus 6 and Exodus 19. What are the laws and the decrees the marriage contract or promises are outlining? He gave his laws. He gave his promises. He gave his decrees on the very day that he proposed to his bride Israel. Did Adonai write a marriage contract with any other nation? No. Is he hedging his bets just in case this doesn't work out? No. I actually think that verse 20, there's something about it that just makes me so joyful. He has done this for no other nation. Well, good. It's because he's a faithful groom. He's not proposing to everyone. He's got one bride in mind, the nationalistic Israel that he is looking towards. No other one. Nobody else has his laws. Praise the Lord. <laughs> praise the Lord that no one else has his laws. Now, wait a minute, Brother Barry. I'm not sure if we put the praise the Lord in the right place here. 
But we have, if you are thinking about it from the perspective of Israel, responding. Come on, ladies. Do you, you don't want a groom that has been proposing his way around to see what will work. I'm in love with this person. No, I'm not. Now I'm in love with this one. You want someone who is so enamored and desirous of you that there is no one else on the world in the world that can compare. That is what you're seeing here. Look, we're going to take another writings. In this passage, is going to describe Adonai's ongoing thoughts about his bride-to-be. This is Psalm 148. We're picking up in verse 13 and going to read through 14. It says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. And he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants. O Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. All right, everybody turn and look at Hayes in the sound booth again. He and Sarah are not married yet, but they are engaged, and the time is drawing nearer for the consummation of all things. For the two to become one flesh, Adonai has his people close to his heart in eager anticipation. Guys, you've got to catch the actual imagery here. This is a groom speaking about his bride, saying, we're not married yet, but you are near to my heart. And I cannot wait to be one with you. So once again, let's answer the question. What people is near to the groom's heart? To be near to the heart of a groom. Now, every woman in this room should understand what that feels like. If you're married, you should know what that is. If you're not yet married, you know that that's something that you long for. I got to admit. Christy Sutherland is close to my heart right now. As a matter of fact, I don't think she's ever been closer to my heart. I mean, I literally need her. When I say that I need my wife, I need my wife. I, I can't go through a day. I can't go very far without needing her. And what is going on is it's producing kind of a revival inside of our hearts. I have a longing for my wife. I have a longing but to have her close to my side. See, and this is exactly the kind of picture that you are seeing and that you are hearing with these verses that we've just been reading. You've been getting a glimpse of an eternal and a heavenly love story that the Israeli groom of Adonai is looking for an Israeli bride in the nation of Israel. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. We want to show this to you in a slide very quickly that you'll recall from your marriage enrichment. Wedding imagery. Take a look here. We've already talked about some of these. In Exodus 19, God is a husband who literally carries his bride to the place that she can be one with him and share his function. This bride is Israel. In Jeremiah 3.14, God specifically calls himself the husband and his bride is Israel. In Ezekiel 16, he reaffirms the covenant of marriage with his bride who is Israel. In Hosea 2, he describes the marriage as eternal to his bride, Israel. In Psalm 45, the great king of Israel obtains his royal bride and produces offspring in joy and gladness, and his bride is Israel. You see on the right-hand side of the screen in Matthew 22, Jesus, who is the son of David, 
He describes the kingdom in exclusively wedding terms. It is a wedding with Israel that is to come. Matthew 25, God's people are described as being pledged to be married and eagerly waiting on the Israeli bridegroom. Saints, the whole description of the wise versus foolish brides is about him refining her so that they can marry him. John 3, John the Immerser refers to Jesus as the bridegroom who has come and spoken to his bride, Israel. Now, you should be familiar with Revelation 19 as of late here. In describing the culmination of the ages, which is the marriage of God to his people, his bride, Israel. So somebody say it with us. The bride is Israel. The bride is Israel. Look, the point is that we all jump up and immediately say that we are the bride of Christ. To be clear, that was a trap intentionally. We've taken 24 minutes to systematically work through the law of prophets and writings, throw up a slide that you should be familiar with, to undeniably drive a nail in the anchor point that the bride is Israel. Are you with us so far? Do you understand that so far? Ephesians 5, Paul seems to be talking about a husband and a wife and plainly says he is really talking about Jesus and the church. So that begs a question that we really wanted to get to this morning. So who is the church? So we're about to read Ephesians 5 and address a concept so pervasive that after decades of preaching and teaching, most people still get this wrong. Now, to be frank, we don't expect to be able to fully uproot inappropriate views of the answer to this question in one, in, in one sermon alone. But we do intend to put a large dent in the matter. Ephesians 5, let's read 31 and 32 together. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Yeah. This mystery is profound. Somebody say the mystery, the mystery. Is, profound. is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So today we're going to begin to address the, uh, you know, that, that old school Baptist, Church of Christ, Lutheran, or any other dispensational voice in your head that kind of cries out. And the truth is, is that voice inside of us really sounds like a little girl that says, that's us. That's me. It's me. It's us as being distinct from Israel. So most of Christian theology has the church defined as those Gentiles who have believed and superseded or replaced Israel. Most of Christian theology has the church as the Gentile community that will be saved apart from Israel's destiny. So look, we're not going to trap you anymore this morning. Okay? We're going to tell you plainly. Because I know you're my family. How many of you have defined the church? I know how I have defined the church in the past. So we're going to go over a few things that are typical. So to begin with, if you were to do something silly like Google a definition of the church, which we did yesterday just, just for fun. Number one, a building for Christian worship. Meaning that this warehouse would be the church as opposed to you, the living church of God. As in, I'm going to church. The second, the company of all Christians globally, regarded as a spiritual body, 
meaning those who are Gentiles and claim to be in Christianity. The third, a specified Christian denomination of your own choosing who you define as the church, again, meaning Gentiles of your choosing. Top three Google results. Now, most of you, when asked who is the church, things that you would have honestly answered, and to be honest, they're not entirely wrong, they're just missing the primary point. The church, well, that's the followers of Jesus. The church, well, that's, that's those who believe. The church, those who have been baptized into Christ. The church, well, for a few of you, you might have had a better answer because you've been trained that the church is the Gentiles who've come to faith in the Jewish Messiah. The truth of the matter could not be more inaccurate in our understanding and description from the beginning to the end of the word of God. It's not that any of those answers are incorrect in and of themselves. It's that they are missing the primary emphasis that 2,000 years has worked to strip from your understanding of the church. Somebody say, this is exciting. This is, is going to make sure that we're not missing the primary emphasis that the word of God puts on something. Isn't this helpful for us today? There's a drift that happens if you're not constantly going back to the word. And God is causing this as a season of LCM, as a season in the one association, to make sure that our heart is aligned exactly with what his heart is aligned with. And so as we are defining what the church is, we want to tell you that we have a slide for you. And we're going to walk through this slide together. The origin and identification of the church. So first of all, you get Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Upon this revelation, Peter, that you have received, I'm going to build my church. The very words of Christ being spoken here. The gates of hell shall not prevail. But consider who the revelation was given to. The revelation was given to a Jewish apostle. Let's look at the next passage, Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. If you ask the average person who has not been through our Acts Foundation teaching, you would say that this, this is the birth of the church right here on the day of Pentecost. But what you're seeing here is that you're seeing that there were 12 fire-validated Jewish apostles that were blessed on this Pentecost, that the men and the women who received the very empowerment of the Spirit were of Jewish origin. It was in Jerusalem. It was during the time of the feast, and it was to the Jews that the very Spirit of God was given. In Acts 5, which, by the way, is the first time that the word church is used in the book of Acts, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. By the way, in Acts 5, we are talking about Ananias and Sapphira. By the way, in Acts 5, we are talking about an entirely Jewish church that we're reading about. By the time that you get to Acts 8, we have sampled Acts 8 and Acts 9. Saul approved, uh, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Saul was ravaging the church. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. There was a Jewish church that was established in Israel. Now, the origins and identification of the church, which have been imbued with mythical Gentile properties, was nothing more 
listen to it, than the first fruits of believing Israelites. Standing here today, we have a problem. We have a reverse filter problem of epic proportions. We view every bit of the New Testament epistles as clearly being written to us as Gentile believers. I want you to go ahead and engage with that just for a second before we move on. We're not saying you guys. We're saying all of us. We look at the scriptures and we say, yes, it was written for us. It's written to us. But that's not exactly what is going on. The truth of the matter is that the historical record in Acts shows a predominantly ethnic Jewish church with later expansion efforts to areas of mixed ethnic descent. Furthermore, epistles like James. Somebody say James. James. Hebrews. Hebrews. 1 Peter. 2 Peter. Honestly, those would be difficult to interpret as pertaining to us as Gentiles at all without the mystery unveiled in the Pauline epistles and the experiences of Peter in Acts chapter 10. Guys, when you pick up a book like James and it says that it is written to the scattered tribes, meaning those of Israel who are dispersed, the address E is not to Gentiles. We're standing 2,000 years on the other side of a revelation that is primarily detailed in the Pauline epistles, and we understand that it also applies to us. But when the first century audience was engaging in these letters, it's from the exact opposite filter. They already understood that Israel was the bride. They already understood that the church they were meeting in was Israeli in its origin, and at that time entirely in its makeup. And it was a mystery to them that we could also be included. So to repeat some of this, the origin and the identity of the church, meaning the called out ones, Ecclesia, is and always has been Israeli, regardless of its current proportionality. I'm going to say that again, and I know some of you still will not grasp it, but you will have this on recording. The church, meaning the called out ones, is and always has been Israeli, regardless of its current proportionality. The bride of Christ, or in Greek, or if you want to take it in Hebrew terms, the bride of Messiah, the hope of Israel, has always been Israel. She has always been longing for a Messiah, and that does not change now that we're in the New Testament. And it was a mystery that anyone other than ethnic Israel could be included as a part of that bride. The church, meaning the called out ones, is in a sense the first fruits of the bride that is to come, that is Israel. It is the first portion indicating that the whole harvest will come in later. The church is Israeli and will always be Israeli because it is the portion of the bride, that Israeli bride, that is coming in advance of the whole bride. Somebody say it's a deposit. It's a deposit. Somebody say it's the first fruit. It's the first fruit. But the rest is to come. But the rest is to come. To put what we're saying clearly, we know that many have trouble viewing the church as anything other than Gentile. Most of you, if you grew up in any denominational setting, were taught verbatim that the church is distinct from Israel and that there are two different pathways to salvation. The church is entirely Israeli. It is the first fruits of it. And we will get to the mysterious inclusion. Furthermore, others who have the same eschatological understanding as us, like we're on the same page in this room, 
You're going to wrestle with the wording when defining the church. So let's state clearly, the church is nothing more or less than the first sign of the harvest that is to come when national Israel is saved. Who is the bride of Christ? To say it another way, the church is the portion of the Israelite bride that has come to faith as a sign of what is to come and as a mystery. Somebody say mystery. Mystery. It also happens to include Gentiles, as Paul outlined, because of their faith in the Israeli king and groom, Jesus. These Gentile inclusions remain ethnically distinct in the same way Ittai the Gittite was. And yet, like Ittai, are included in the promises of God because of their relationship to the groom that is the son of David. Y'all remember Ittai doctrine? Did they ever call him a Jew? No. Ittai the Gittite. And yet, he was incorporated in Israel because of his relationship to David, or the son of David. Ittai was always a Gentile, and yet he was allowed to participate in the kingdom of Israel purely because he had given himself over to the service of the king of Israel. Look, because we don't have time to revisit the plan of God for Israel and the inclusion of Gentiles in Romans 11 for the fourth sermon in a row, we're going to help you by putting what we've just said to you in a visual format. Some of you got what we just said because you heard it. Some of you will get what we said because we're about to show it to you. Others are going to have to work your way into understanding the importance of what we're presenting to you today, and that's also a good thing. Take a look at this slide. To put it succinctly, number one, Israel is the bride of Christ. Period. Number two. Hold on. Do you all need another 72 passages about how Israel's the bride, or do you get it? Look, if you want to debate that, I'll sit all night long. It's really quite easy to prove. Number two, the church is the first fruit of the Israeli bride that will come in fully at the national salvation of Israel. When you're speaking of the church, you should hear that this is the first fruit of an Israeli bride. Number three, our mysterious inclusion in the church is based upon our relationship to the Israeli groom. Our ethnic distinction remains. But we will be incorporated into the bride when the Jewish groom marries Israel, which is still yet to come. There is unity. Right now, there is distinction. We do not replace Israel. There is distinction. We are Gentiles that because of our relationship with the Israeli groom get to be included into what is called the church, the Israeli church. At the end, at the consummation, there's going to be perfect unity. But right now, this gives us clarity of who we are and what we must be about. So that there is no confusion, not just yay, we are for Israel, but we're starting to get a better glimpse of what really is at stake and where we stand, and therefore what we must do. Saints, isn't it important, as people who call ourselves Christians, meaning representations of Christ, little images of Christ on the earth sharing who he is, that we understand and are able to labor for Christ's desire? Because he desires to marry his bride, Israel. In any singular sermon, it would be impossible to answer every thought or concern And that is why we are staying on this topic for weeks. 
And we're going to have to combine concepts from weeks so that we don't have three and a half hour sermons every Sunday. We want to keep advancing the point. But you will remember that last Sunday we examined Ezekiel 36 and Ephesians 5. You should recall that Ezekiel 36 states nothing about Gentiles coming to faith, but instead clearly outlines the bride that is Israel being made ready for her husband. Look, this morning we want to dive into the mind of Paul and the text of Ephesians, knowing that every first century believer would already understand that Israel is the bride of Messiah. As Paul unveils the mystery of God and how we are also allowed to participate in this wedding by becoming one with Israeli groom, King Jesus. So at this point, it is appropriate that we revisit a slide from last week's incredible message, Mystery. Anybody like me that feels like it was, it, it's hard to believe that that was already a week ago. As we do, remember that first century believers would have already understood from the Tanakh that Israel is the bride of Christ. And Paul is elucidating the process by which she will be saved using Gentile graftins who make Israel jealous via their relationship to the groom. Take a look at this slide. The sevenfold mystery in the epistle to the Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 1 and verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will. By the way, there is no mystery that the bride of Christ is Israel itself. That's not a mystery. That's plain as day. That is plain as day. We've shown it to you going over 20 scriptures approximately in the Tanakh. And we could do it with a hundred more. That's not the mystery. The mystery is how the Israeli groom would go about receiving his Israeli bride and the inclusion of Gentiles into that. That is the mystery. You'll remember Moses' song, the unforgettable song? The bride was always Israel, but the mystery is how he would bring her into envy and redemption and purity using goy like us. So you're seeing the term mystery used seven times in the book of Ephesians, but it is one mystery that's being unveiled to you. Look at Ephesians 3, 6, right in the middle of your slide. This mystery. Somebody say this mystery. This mystery. Is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs with the Israeli bride. And members of the same body of the groom. And partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is that this Israeli story with an Israeli groom Adonai, with an Israeli bride Israel, the mystery is that there are others that are included, Gentiles that are included in as co-heirs with the Israeli bride and as members of the Israeli groom. Somebody say that's a mystery. And that is what Paul is expounding upon and clarifying here. Look at the very last one on the screen. Ephesians 6, 19. And also be praying for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Not the mystery that, of who the bride is. That is patently obvious. It's painfully clear. It's beautifully, wonderfully clear throughout the word. The mystery is our inclusion into this. So you see that this slide has got 
seven mysteries that are really just a single mystery. Namely, the way in which Messiah will bring about the restoration and marriage of Israel to himself as the great groom with Gentile inclusions who participate in his plan to perfect his bride, Israel. Somebody say, I'm included. Through the groom. The way that you have inclusion in this is through your adherence to the groom, the king of Israel, the one who will marry her. You are not Israel here today, but you are included by your attachment to the one who is going to marry Israel. Look, as we begin our exposition on Ephesians, it's probably best that we start with a visual aid to help you understand who is in Paul's initial frame of reference. As we read this, and I may skim some of it, you should know that when it's highlighted yellow, it's Israelites. When it's highlighted green, it's Gentiles. And when it's highlighted blue, Treaster, you already know this text. I apologize. The highlights are not going to help you. When it's highlighted blue, this is Jewish believers along with Gentiles as a collective body in Messiah. Okay, so Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. Guys, this is speaking of Israel's original destiny that has been true from the beginning. For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We don't have time to go through the occurrences of the son that he loves, but the beloved is the groom. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Since this is about to get a lot clearer, but this mystery was revealed to Jewish men who were sharing it with the outside world. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, Israel, so that we, believing Jewish community, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Saints, you'd be hard-pressed to show even one Gentile in the ministry of Jesus who came to genuine, believing faith and had his mystery revealed to him in the way that Paul describes. We love when we see a centurion who seems to have faith, and I'm all for it. That centurion didn't have the mysteries of his will and go out to the world and share that mystery like these Jewish apostles did. He didn't choose the centurion. He chose his 12 Jewish apostles. And some that were abnormally born, but he appeared to for this purpose. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That is Israel. In him, you also. You also. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We don't have time to cover Acts 10 and 11. But what proved to the Jewish community in Jerusalem that Gentiles really were coming into the faith 
was that Cornelius and his household were baptized with the same spirit of holiness that is the spirit of Jesus or the spirit of the groom. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? Saints, the point would be that the beginning of Ephesians 1 outlines those who received the mystery first and that through Israel, you also have been allowed to participate. And because we all share in the spirit of the groom, meaning that the spirit of the one who is going to marry Israel dwells in you, well, we will all acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians begins with this premise. And with that in mind, we're going to see what else he begins to speak to us as we continue. But it starts with first given to the Jew and then also given to the Gentile. Ephesians 1, and look at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now we have sung, sung songs of this verse. We've talked about this verse. It's one of my personal favorites. You could say collectively it's one of our favorites as a church. But consider this in light of what we're sharing with you today. It is undeniably clear with any substantial command of the Tanakh that the inheritance of the saints is Israel or the bride of Messiah. The revelation that requires genuine prayer for the enlightening of the eyes of our heart is that we may comprehend and know what to do with Adonai's mysterious inclusion of us in his plan to redeem and marry Israel. Somebody say, it's a mystery. It's a profound mystery, and God is requiring us to say, Lord, we need you to, we are praying that the eyes of our heart be enlightened from the heavens so that we can get this right. Amen. The extent to which Adonai is able to call the end from the beginning with his people, it's truly breathtaking. Furthermore, he also includes Goyim or the nations into his plan because of our relationship to him as the groom, and he allows us to participate in the wedding of his bride, Israel. See, the depths of the mysteries of God revealed to us is something men have longed to understand for millennia, but it's now been revealed to us. Pastor Wade just said it clearly. Our relationship to the groom is what causes us to have inclusion. Now let's take a theoretical story that is actually a real story. You were a wretched slave in captivity. And a great king had mercy on you and broke you free. And he called you his son. He called you his brother. He shared his will and his mysteries with you. And then he tells you he wants to marry a woman. What would you not do to help him accomplish what he desires? You were bought with a price and for a purpose. And it's not to sit and exist. We're going to get to it. But when you hear about these expansion efforts we're making... We're not raising funds for humanitarian efforts. We're not just going somewhere to say that we did something. We're aiming at reaching Jerusalem, the very bride that our king desires. And for such a purpose, we were purchased. We're going to move to verse 22 and 23 to help you understand the depth of what has been entrusted to us. 
This verse just before our text illustrates, the verse just before our text illustrates that the plan and riches of God have been poured out on all who believe, first for the Jew and also for the Gentiles who have come to faith through relationship to the groom of Israel. So this is verse 22 of the same chapter. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Guys, again, the church is the first fruits of the Israeli bride that Adonai will inherit. And it is also by divine mystery, those of us who have been reconciled to the groom. As a people who were not a people of any account in God's sight, he has now reconciled us back to him, back to him. And we have a job or work to do on the groom's behalf in bringing the rest of the bride in that he has designated for himself. Hayes, I'm picking on you today. Would you accept a substitution? Neither will God. And he brought us in and has given us a job to do. As the church, a collective of the first fruits of Israel along with Gentile add-ons, we make up the body of Messiah, the body of the groom, the body of Christ through our relationship to him. The fullness of the body of Christ and we will be seen will be seen when national Israel, who is the bride of Messiah, is brought into complete unity in one flesh with Jesus, the groom. That is when all Israel is saved. Yeah. To say this another way, we are part of the church or the first fruits of the bride because we are in relation to the groom. In the culmination of all things, we will be included in the fullest manifestation of things when Messiah has his bride, all Israel in salvation. The bride has always been Israel. The church is the first fruits of Israel, along with additional graftons, those who've been reconciled to the groom and are attached to him and his desire and his purposes. And under that groom, well, he will lead us and fill all in all when he has his whole bride, national Israel, and he will put all things right. Amen. Turn with us to Ephesians 2. Let's look at verse 10 together. Watch how this very familiar verse is completely illuminated in a different way today. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made up in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separate from the groom, you were separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, it's best that we stop before we get to verse 13, lest you fail to engage with what Paul said about your condition. We've got to take a sampling real quick. Yeah, go ahead. In, anybody in here between verse 10, 11, and 12 have a pericope that seems to indicate to you it's a subject change? Yeah? Scratch it out. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, and he goes on to describe how he redeemed you. You were without hope. You were without God in the world. But now he's given you a job to do. Come on. Look, at least once in Christ, you were created for good works that usher in the fulfillment of his plan to marry Israel. At this place in history, with our reverse filter, we are very comfortable with the fact that as Gentiles, we are participators in the promise given to Israel. 
But you need to remember that if it were not for the fact that the groom had brought you into relation with himself, you were without hope. You were without God in the world. See, we've been included into the body of the groom, into the body of Messiah, and it is our job to ask him for the unveiling of the eyes of our heart so that we can understand his plan for his bride Israel and our work in that plan. Can you imagine me declaring my friendship and my loyalty and my love for Judah, but caring nothing about his actual family that's sitting on the front row? What would you know about what I am saying if I care nothing for Sasha, if I care nothing for the children? What would you know to be true of me? I have no relationship with him. I declare my loyalty. I'm, I admire you, but I care nothing that you care for. That cannot be. What the Lord is allowing us is making sure that we are getting our eyes set on the work. Somebody say work. Work. The work that is required because our groom has his eyes set on his bride and he's giving us an opportunity as members of his body to participate in the plan that the entirety of the ages, the entirety of the word is focused upon and it's our great joy to do so. Amen. So you were not saved to just sit on your salvation, but you were prepared to partner with him in his plan just like Ittai did with King David. See, now that you have that in mind, let's continue on in verse 13. Saints, let's catch a review together. If you're not quite hearing this, it's not stirring you, you're intellectually understanding it, but you're wondering what you should do. Ephesians 1 teaches you that you should pray that he would open the eyes of your heart. That if you don't understand it, if you don't have the desires of the groom, if you don't understand why this is important, if you ask him, he will help you understand the inheritance he desires in his saints, Israel, and he will fill you with knowledge about it. He will fill you with his desires. Amen. Ephesians 2 says he has set you free and he has created good works for you to do. And if he's given Tom good works, if he's given me good works, we better know what they are so we can accomplish them. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of the groom, or the blood of Christ. For he himself is our shalom, our right order, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Saints, again, we have no problem putting ourselves as Gentiles right in the center of thought being brought near by the blood of Christ. But the overwhelming point that Paul has established thus far is that even thinking that way is a sign of a dividing wall of hostility that must be broken. See, when we have no problem seeing ourselves brought in and we gasp, we have to think, we have to wonder about his desire for the bride, those are areas of hostility that still exist and must be broken down by the blood of Christ. Saints, dispensational theology, divestment theology, those are terms that mean in some way you are replacing the bride. 
Those things are the result of sinful hostility that Christ died to put to death. The Israeli groom has created in himself one new man in place of the two. One new man that is the very body of Christ with him as the head. We are a part of this body by our relationship to the groom. The church is defined in the continuity of the Tanakh, the very words of Jesus, and the record of the book of Acts is that the first fruits of Israel is the church, and they are a sign of what is to come in the ultimate marriage of the Lamb to national Israel. We've been given the right of access to this mystery through the groom, but we have nothing to access if Israel was no longer the bride of Messiah. Church, there is a hostility that arises with these supernatural revelations of mysteries, revelations of the kingdom that is to come. There is hostility from the people in Paul's day that any nation other than Israel could have access. I mean, there are people who are like, what? No. There's hostility in our day because of a reverse filter that anyone other than Gentiles could be the focus of Jesus in the New Testament, of the desire of God, especially in the way that Israel would bring about the blessing to the world as she marries Messiah. Paul is aiming at speaking to the Israeli bride and the mysterious Gentile inclusions they were added as a part of the body of Israel's groom to bring them both together into unity. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 3 with us. Verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. I love the way Paul writes. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So by now, the use of the language mystery should cause your mind to start with the inescapable truth that the bride is Israel, has always been Israel, and will always be Israel. The Israeli groom will never relinquish his beloved, because he is betrothed to her. He is ever faithful to his promise, and the wedding day is still yet to come. Revelation 19. Generations of the most godly men imaginable didn't have the revelation that you now have available to you. With that kind of revelation, you know that that makes us more responsible for what we're doing. Namely, that found within the body of the Israeli groom would be the mysterious Gentile inclusions that would get to partake in the promises that Adonai makes towards his bride. Like the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Like the song of Moses and the Lamb in Revelation 15. The mystery was that God would use Gentiles like us to bring about his ultimate plan for Israel. Can you tell how important it is that we pray for the opening of our eyes? That you know and perform the task that he has prepared for you to do? Let's keep moving. We're going to pick up in 3, 8 through 10. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Look again, to help you define the church based on the Tanakh itself, to define the church based on the words of Jesus and the record of Acts. The church is the first fruits of Israel, those who believe, and 
those who have been mysteriously grafted in because of their relationship to the groom. It is our job to display to the principalities that once held us personally captive or our people groups captive that Adonai's purposes will stand. Thursday night, we talked about standing on and boldly declaring promises made to you personally. Gentlemen, I found that message moving and was tearing up listening to it in a hospital. With that in mind, what about the promises that we are called to corporately? The things we are called to declare before the powers of this world. Do you guys understand that the spiritual powers of the world hate Israel? That they hate the word of God and those who stand on both? Why is it that we're sitting here and what is typically said to be a Judeo-Christian nation, and there's hostility in our school systems over doing something like praying, over having a Bible, or any reference to Scripture. It's because this world system hates Adonai's plan to marry his bride, Israel. Well, it is time that we stand on those promises and not keep them quietly to ourselves. He'll do it when he wants to. We stand and we declare it because we are in the groom and he has purchased us and we will fight for what he says is right. As the church and body of Messiah, it is our job to advocate, to suffer, and die for the culmination of Adonai's plans. Those plans are namely to marry all Israel, and the way that will happen is that we bring the gospel back to Jerusalem, and we must sacrifice to make it happen. Can you be honest with yourself for a moment and consider the difference between what you have considered the church displaying the manifold wisdom of God and the actual call of God? The church is not called to display the manifold wisdom of God through superior preaching and enthusiasm. If we get up here and deliver a beautiful sermon, don't get me wrong, I hate boring sermons. I don't listen to them. I'll go about 15 minutes into it, and if there's not something new, if there's not some passion, I don't appreciate it. But preaching a passionate message, having great slides, that is not displaying the manifold wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God is shown in men and women who are laying down their life like the groom did for the sake of the gospel going back to Israel. Displaying the manifold wisdom of God before these powers is doing what God wants despite their best efforts to kill you, to kill your children, to cause you to despair, to break you in every way that it can. The manifold wisdom of God is not displayed through enthusiastic worship. Or things that would be described as powerful because the lights were dim and it was emotionally moving. Displaying the manifold wisdom of God is by standing as a people advocating for the plan of God to marry his bride, Israel, and doing whatever it takes to ensure that she is ready when he comes. So to summarize a couple of the concepts that we've been speaking to you about. First of all, the bride is Israel. Next, you are only the bride through the groom along with Israel being married. You are in the body of the groom and therefore can be connected with the bride. We need the eyes of our heart opened to understand what we're saying today. You were created with a job to do in relation to Adonai's plan to marry Israel. And this work that has been assigned to us is intended to make a statement to the powers above that we stand with Adonai and his desire for his bride. He will get what he wants. He will get the salvation of his bride, of his beloved, of his betrothed, Israel itself. So let's take our next two chapters on a slide. 
because we've been teaching on them heavily for the last three years or so, but especially the last several weeks. Okay, so Ephesians 4, you see this? One body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to all the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all in all. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Look, we're going to expound on that in just a moment. But he's speaking to believing Gentiles. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Ephesians 5, which we just covered last week, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ or the groom is the head of the church. His body is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Then verse 32, where he explains himself, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Guys, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, as you can see on the screen. In essence, this embodies the logo of the One Association. Anybody wearing a One Association shirt today? Okay. Through our relationship to the groom, we with the first fruits of Israel, and ultimately all Israel, will become one body, one spirit, and standing in one faith. That is the destination that we are heading towards. But in the meantime, it is our job to represent the groom. Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. This is written to believing Gentiles. It is written to a mixed community of both, but the Gentiles who are receiving this are not unbelievers. Unbelievers do not fit the context of Paul's writing, and frankly, they would not be reading Paul's letter. The clear implication is that Gentile believers, we need to stop thinking like Gentiles, darkened in our understanding, corrupting the truth of the Tanakh. Do you guys get that? How many times have you and I read Ephesians 4:17? Yeah, you can't walk any longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds way out there outside in the unsaved realms. That's not who Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to believing Gentiles who've been included into the Israeli church. He says you have to stop thinking independently of what God's thoughts are because you have now been brought into the Israeli groom and you cannot have your mind darkened to the mystery of what God has actually presented. Amen. We've been aiming at you understanding the concept of what the church is for quite some time now. But Ephesians 5, 23 through 24, it's a clear depiction, as you should already know, that Christ is the head of the church. He is the groom. This is because the church is the first fruits of national Israel. It is a sign of what is to come. And it is also inclusive of Gentiles who've been reconciled by coming to the groom and being in right relationship with the man and the God who is the husband of Israel. Ephesians 5, 32 through 33 is Paul just stating this flatly. Paul ensures that you understand this mystery and that you understand that practically in relation to this mystery, something is required of you. Namely, that your home, your life, it matches his desires and replicates him as the body of Christ on earth. Our very marriages are supposed to be a sign of how Adonai will marry his bride. So we have some truths for you that have been gleaned from the Tanakh with the insight provided by our survey of the book of Ephesians that we've just done. Take a look at this next slide. Israel is the bride of Christ. 
you see in Ephesians 1 that the gospel is first for the Jew, and then it expresses the incorporation of the Gentiles through Messiah. Number two, the church is the first fruit of the Israeli bride that will come in fully at the national salvation of Israel. You see in Ephesians 2 and 3, they declare that the dividing wall of hostility have been removed and we have a job to do, ushering in the unification of the bride that is national Israel to her groom as the bride of Christ. Number three, our mysterious inclusion in the church is based on our relationship to the Israeli groom as members of his body. Ephesians 4 and 5 illustrate our inclusion and give us a job description that is based upon our experience with the Israeli groom. Anybody in here like a visual representation? Let's do our next slide and let's help you see what we've been describing. Adonai, he's the groom and always has been. His physical representation, I mean the image of the invisible God, embodied in the son of David, Jesus. He will marry national Israel as his bride. That has always been the set purpose and foreknowledge of God has been declared again and again and again. What was not so obvious and is a part of the mystery that we've all been included in is that there are first fruits of that bride that come before all Israel is saved. And in that church, he mysteriously includes Gentiles because of their relationship to the groom. Saints, you are not Israel, but because of your relationship to the groom, when he marries Israel, we will all be one. Guys, these kind of things actually have much bigger applications in your own study of the word. It's important that we learn to understand these differences. Adonai is the Israeli groom whose stated goal from the beginning is for the salvation and marriage of his Israeli bride. The ultimate goal and plan of God is that we, along with national Israel, will be incorporated into the bride of Christ as one body. The church that is Israeli and also has some mysterious Gentile inclusions, well, together we make up the body of Christ, the body of the groom on earth. You remember that in the book of Acts? How we spent time looking at what it looks like to be filled with the spirit of Jesus, to be his body and hands and feet on the earth? This is what it looks like. And who together long and work tirelessly for the ultimate union of Adonai, to his national bride, who is Israel. Again, this is the image of Revelation 19 when it happens. But you will hear a thousand sermons who do not have any concept that that bride is Israel. Guys, this adds clarity to where we are and who we are. We are the body of Christ. We are those who have been reconciled to the groom. We are a part of the first fruits of Israel known as the church. And it's our job to bring in the fulfillment of it. So we want you to consider in light of the last several years of teaching some revelations that you've heard. And if you weren't here for them, I don't apologize, but make a note and go listen to it. Yeah. Elim and the nations from Exodus 15. Guys, you've been hearing that again and again. That is the process by which we will see the restoration of the ages. We are going to see 12 springs planted here in the United States and in many other nations that will feed the 70 nations of the earth. You've been hearing about an Aswan revelation, about his desire to bring his sons and daughters back and the time frame when he will use Gentiles to bring about the ultimate marriage to his bride Israel. You've been hearing about the Balkan bow, that we're working to lay the groundwork for a place that we can fire sons into the Middle East and reach Jerusalem. In the last three years, you've been practicing what it looks like to set a table 
making your own home a ministry place, inviting others into it, causing the Spirit of God to be richly poured out on those who would spend time with you. For another year, you've been looking at setting out, where you're reaching out to the world around you, working to share not only what is going on in your home privately, but to the outside world. We're looking at preparing to settle in new lands, and that's happening faster than you might think. To be poignantly clear, the bride of Christ is Israel, and it is not you. The church is Israeli, and it is not a Gentile entity. We are a part of the church because of our relationship to the groom. And we will be a part of the body of Christ that is the bride of Christ when Israel comes in because we are with the groom. However, through the mysteries of Christ, you will be in your inclusion in Christ. We will all ultimately be one and included in his bride. But we cannot declare that as if it has already happened when it hasn't. This last Sunday was moving beyond description. And we want to stand with the declarations made in faith. However, we do want to point out the extent to which the promises of God on a national level call men to greater advocacy. They call us to greater action as men who have been reconciled to Christ and greater verbal testimony than any individual request. If you're learning what it is to summon the faith and declare that God will give you a baby, declare that God will cause you to be married, your promises that you know he gave you, how much more faith should we have in the things he's declared from the end to the beginning for Israel? How much more loud and aggressive should we be about displaying that to the world? Where we want to spend the balance of our time is in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 1 tells you to open the eyes of your heart. Pray for it. Ephesians 2 tells you to understand that you've been set free from darkness and you have a purpose. Ephesians 3, 4, and 5 continue to expound on what it looks like to build up the body of Christ and be an image of him. Ephesians 6 is a call to action. And this call to action is not just about vague spiritual warfare. It's not even really about casting out a demon. It is about the things that are opposing the message of the gospel and the responsibility not some pastor, not some apostle, not some prophet has, that every believer has in light of the revelation that you have received. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, having done all to stand firm, then stand therefore. Church, there is a call to arms today. A call to fight for that which our groom, the groom, the Israeli groom is fighting for, is longing for, is working for. There is supernatural opposition against the wedding of the Lamb. You do realize that, right? You do realize how not offense, uh, offended most people are that you serve Jesus? I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. You realize how 
largely that is unoffensive in our day and time. You want to start getting offensive and saying the entirety of the word is about Israel. The entirety of the plan is about them. We stand with them. We fight for them. We will die for them. We are not the center of the story. Now, now you're starting to get offensive. Now you're starting to get ready and see hatred, demonic forces rising in someone. You're starting to see the principalities of this present darkness rise up against you. Because even as we are trying to get this down in our heart, you can feel those spiritual forces stirring against this very house. It's because there is supernatural opposition to it. Because they hate the wedding. They hate the idea that God loves Israel so much that everything about this story is for them and on their behalf. You got to take your stand. You got to take your stand against the hostility, the ideology that's opposed to what we're saying to you today. It's the result of corruption inside the heart of man. And we must take our stand today. Go back to the garden. Darkness existed. A snake existed. Things existed that were sinful in the creation before man ever sinned. We were put here and told to subdue and to multiply. Can I tell you there's been a problem with this world system longer than humanity has existed? There have been dark powers much longer than you've been alive. Ancient evils that have been opposing the plan of God for millennia. And he put us here to display his manifold wisdom to the world. What pastor is saying, we have Christians, quote unquote, that live alongside Muslims with no problems whatsoever all over the world. As long as they disown the people and bride of God. If they're willing to say Israel doesn't matter anymore. If they're willing to say he won't marry her anymore. If they're willing to say she's replaced, they don't care. The darkest powers on this earth are in mortal opposition to a church that knows the plan of God and is willing to fight for it. It is time for you to wake up. It's time for you to rouse yourself. These are not just theological messages. You're not just hearing about something that will happen at the end of the age. You're hearing about your responsibility to pray, fight, and sacrifice. Because we will see the desire of our groom brought to completion. I don't want to spend time talking about sin issues, but there are a few things that we just have to name. If there's still hostility between you and a brother, guys, that's sinful Gentile thinking that needs to be removed from the body of Christ. If there is still disunity between families and wives, that's sinful, futile Gentile thinking that we must remove. If these concepts about God's plan for Israel are in the least bit offensive to you, if you're wondering like, well, that's not quite fair. What about me? What about my country? What about these Gentiles? That's a sign that there's still darkness in your heart. But the beginning of Ephesians opens with asking God to open the eyes of your heart and that he will. We need to have some spiritual sobriety. When we're teaching on these things and you begin to live sacrificially, and then you have terrible trouble at work, your kids are constantly sick, you feel like you're being pressed. When you feel numb walking into a Sunday morning worship service and you have other things on your mind, 
Wake up. Wake up. Christian, you are the answer to the world's problems and the spirits that exist in this earth are supposed to hate you. But you have the armor of God and the ability to stand for his promises. We're going to examine Paul's last request in Ephesians 6, and it's a request for himself personally, but it ought to teach us something. This is verse 18 through 20. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me. And also for me, that words may be given me. Thank you, like I, I understand it, but I don't know what to say. Pray that he might give you the words. Pray that he might fill you with fire in your bones. Pray that what happened to Jeremiah would happen to you, that you cannot keep silent. It says, pray also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Thanks, let no restriction. Let no feeling of inadequacy. Let no feeling that you cannot at work or in relation to your family. Speak up about what God desires. As a church body, we need to begin to stir ourselves. Stir ourselves that no chain will keep us silent. That no opposition will keep us silent. No feeling of fear will keep us silent. We will learn to speak boldly and God will give us the words. The Apostle Paul asked the church of Ephesus to pray. Saints, it must be that the greatest of all men have to stoke the coals and it doesn't just happen on its own. How much more so us? Look, Ephesians begins in chapter 1 with a call to pray, which you've already heard. It moves into chapter 2, letting us know that we have works that we were prepared to do. Guys, we have to get a greater understanding and a greater fire about the full inheritance that Christ desires. His bride Israel and our role in it. Ephesians just ended with a call for all men to pray and fight and for a personal prayer for the Apostle Paul himself that he might find the courage to declare it boldly despite his chains. Look, at this point, we want you to stand. And there are a few things we want to call you to begin to pray to do. If you have futile Gentile thinking, I don't want to punish all of us with running on about all of the things that are futile in Gentile thinking. In light of the purpose that you have in Christ... In light of the mysterious inclusion he has brought you into. Do not let any sin issue stand between you and the works that you were prepared in Christ to do. Get rid of it. But more than repentance. More than turning from dead works. What we want to do is begin to cultivate a spirit of action. To begin to cultivate a desire for the same things that our father has. To learn to wake up to the spiritual powers we're interacting with every day. And not be unaware, but be aware and fight for the purposes of God. I believe that as we begin to pray, the God who desires his bride Israel, well, because we're included in him, he'll begin to give us his desires. He'll begin to show us how to practically prepare. He'll show us what to do with our homes and our families and how to get ready for this generational battle we have ahead of us. I don't know quite how much time I have left with you. But I know that this body will need the future leaders that I see in this room. 
It's time for us to rise up in our callings. We have pastors. We have future elders. We have apostles in this room. But it's so, so easy just to get into a rhythm and cease to expect more of yourself every day. As men of God, we need to begin to demand of ourselves first and then our families that we rise to greater heights and fight for the plan of God. Let's begin to raise our hands, and I'm going to ask a couple of brothers to pray with us. If we can just play music softly, we can jump immediately into the lyrics of a song that someone else wrote and wasn't originated from our own heart. I think it's appropriate that we begin to pray to God and ask Him to open the eyes of our heart and to light a fire inside of us. Paul Rosales, if I can get you to come down here. Asad Robinson, if I can steal you. Ray Ludvigson, if you can come as well. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask these men to begin to pray as well. We're going to worship a little bit. We're going to engage in this. But there is no substitute for you asking God to give you a revelation of his desires and to put his spirit in you again to the extent that you're willing to fight for what he will fight for. Begin to praise these men lead us. Lord, beyond what we deserve, you have been merciful to us and you have made known to us your plan. God, you have allowed for us to participate. And Lord, you have been patient with us to draw us near to yourself that we would know the fullness of your plan, the people for which you have designed this plan and the land in which you wish, you wish to accomplish it. And God, you will accomplish it. And we declare in this place tonight, this morning, that we join with you. Father, that we are partnered with you and what you want to do. God, that it's not about how we think we're going to get there, but about what you have already said. Father, you are opening our eyes to see what you see. God, you have given us ears to hear and hearts to perceive. Let us not turn back now. And God, what we have started in the spirit, let us not go back to the flesh, God. Let your spirit continue to stir up inside of us. Lord, let that fire continue to burn inside of us to see your plan accomplished, mighty one. God, that we are just now stepping into this. And Lord, we want to do it with full of passion, Lord God. God, that you are strengthening us right now. God, that you have called us to do it alongside brothers. And Lord, you have uh, chosen us to join with your people, Israel, Lord God. Father, we say thank you, mighty one. Would you stir us up right now? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for this message. Thank you for uniting us today to come together. God, as I'm hearing these things, I'm reminded that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven is not made up of civilians. It's not made up of non-combatants, Lord, but it's made up of soldiers. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon us, Lord, that we would lay down everything that hinders God, that we would lay down everything that's in our way, but we would have our sights set on your enemies, mighty God, that we would rise up as soldiers for your will be done in our lives. Thank you, mighty God. Heavenly Father, as our hands are raised high to you, mighty King, our hearts open wide, Lord God. We're asking you to fill us, mighty King, with more of your desires, more of your spirit, Lord God. Not for our own personal self-advancement, Lord God, but for your people, Lord Jesus. Come on. Stir 
Our desires, Father God, are your desires. Help us to get that mighty king today in our hearts and our minds, Lord God. Not our will be done, but your will be done. And your will, King Jesus, is to marry your people, Israel, Lord God. Our inclusion in that, Father God, is our calling, Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Father. We have work to do. We're not walking around aimlessly, Father God, but you've given us a mission and a purpose and a calling and a goal, Lord Jesus. And we are asking you to empower us daily to help to do that, mighty God. It is our life's goal and aim, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, to give it to us. Father, as one collective body before you, but as men who have been reconciled to you as the groom, we stand and ask that today you would help us to drink of you, that you would open the eyes of our heart and cause us to long for the things that you long for. Lord, as we worship you, that you'd supernaturally put more of yourself inside of us, but that you would transform us as a people that we might stand for your purposes. Lord, rouse this army, rouse this army and cause us to drink of you, drink of your waters of life, mighty one. <laughs> 